Well, today is uh, All Saints Sunday, and All Saints Sunday is uh, the day traditionally held in the church where um, they would honor those martyrs who had fallen before. So in the early, the early church, when uh, Christianity was a punishable offense in certain centuries, it was a way to, to both honor those who were dead and to stir up one's faith that you might become more like them. And while I think it's, it's uh, tended to hold on to some of that character in the years and centuries throughout, we still think of this as a day to honor those saints who are most faithful. I want you to not miss what it is at a base level. At a base level, All Saints Day, I'll say this multiple times, at a base level, All Saints Day is about the enduring quality of Christian fellowship. It's about the enduring quality of Christian fellowship, and that has a whole host of implications, and we'll go through some of those, but do not let the challenge of martyrdom push you away from the hope that is involved in All Saints Day. It is about the enduring quality of Christian fellowship. You see, that is in part just what we heard about in our Revelation passage that was so beautifully read. It's Revelation chapter 21. The author says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then a loud voice said, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God, and they will be his people. You see, in this whole chapter, if you read it closely, there's all kinds of continuity and discontinuity. Plenty of things seem to be removed, in fact. It is a new heavens, a new earth. It is a new era in some capacity, the hope to come. But there is all manner of continuity as well. It is a city. It is a banquet feast. It is a place where relationships can flourish. And at the most fundamental level, again, I think what this is about is the enduring quality of our relationships that we have in Christ. You see, if there's one thing I know and guarantee you that you will find in the new heavens and the new earth, it is your relationships. For those who are baptized in Christ, the guarantee is that you will see both God and one another again. Now, your dog, your favorite food, I don't know, but I guarantee you that you will see one another in the afterlife. And that is a profound hope. And in some ways, I would argue this is entirely what the story of Lazarus is about in our gospel reading. It's an amazing story. You've probably heard it read many times. It's an example, I think, of a whole host of things. It's about faith. It's about the power of the resurrection. It's a foretaste of what God is going to do in Jesus Christ, bring our bodies up from the grave. Jesus even encourages us to think of it as an example, doesn't he? But again, I wonder if this passage is also about the enduring quality of Christian relationship. I don't mean relationship with Jesus in some indeterminate way, but I mean the way friendship with Jesus might be a permanent thing for all of us. Because if you read the story slowly, and you go all the way back to the beginning, we didn't read it, it starts in verse 5, you'll note that there is this incredible emotional involvement that Jesus has with Mary and Martha and their brother uh, Lazarus. 
It builds. So at the beginning, in verse 5, it literally says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then it continues all the way. It gets to verse 32. Lazarus has died at this point. It says, Mary was weeping at her brother's grave. And then Jesus' response was that he was greatly moved, deeply troubled in his spirit. In other words, he's heartbroken. He's heartbroken at the, at the, the sadness of his friend and at the loss of Lazarus. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 35, it's that famous, most short verse, shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus, of course, weeps because he loves Lazarus. And he hates to see his friends in pain. So I wonder if because of that love, he goes to the tomb, tells him to remove the stone, and then he commands the dead man, his friend, Lazarus, to come out. Of course, you read the story, he does. It says specifically, the dead man came out. He walks out of the grave and he is confronted both with his sisters, surely weeping again, a whole crowd of people who are astonished, and then his friend, Jesus, the one who loves him. And so my wonder here is, I wonder if this story is not simply about the power of God's resurrecting ability. But it's also about what it means to be a friend of Jesus. I don't mean that in some sort of cursory way or a trite way. I mean, what if this shows us what it looks like to be a friend of Jesus on an eternal level? In other words, what if friendship with God is simply so strong, so committed, so otherworldly, so uh, covenantal, you might say, that it becomes permanent? There's no other option for Lazarus. He's become a friend of God through Jesus Christ. And so the integrity of that relationship simply must continue forever. It's an amazing idea. I think also what might be true here on a granular level, individual, could be true on the greater breadth of our relationships as well. Think about it this way, when we enter into fellowship with God, maybe it means that through baptism and faith, it means that all of our relational goods gathered up, accumulated through years of experience with your friends and families, all of your relationships that are most dear to you, because they are in Christ, can become resurrected. The relationship itself, not simply the person, the relational good of what you love about that relationship. What that would mean is that when you become a Christian, when you're baptized, as we're about to do to some vocal ones back there, when you are baptized and you come to have faith in the living God, it means that the relationships you gain are permanent and all the good things about them. Can you just begin to think what that might mean? Can it, can it stir in your heart a little bit? Is it not profound? Now, some of you are realists, and I think you're probably wondering, that sounds great if it involves my mother. If it involves my uncle, that's not great news to me. I hate Uncle Jerry, or whatever it might be. I'm not sure for you. But if that's you and you're wondering that, I think you're actually on the right track as well. Because in this truth about the goodness of Christian relationship, the eternal component of Christian relationship, I think there is both an immense blessing and an immense challenge. There's an immense challenge. Because it means that you have to love the people that you strongly dislike. 
At its most practical, in other words, the enduring reality of the communion of saints means that there can never, ever be any throwaway relationships. There can be no people that don't matter. There can be no lesser kinds of folk that you encounter in your everyday life. It means that all of the relationships you have matter. And they have to be handled with integrity and joy and care. Again, it means that you are required to start caring for the people in your life, actual people, that you firmly dislike, that you go the other way when you see them coming. I think of it this way. Some of y'all know I worked in commercial fishing in college. I worked in Alaska for a fishing company, and um, it was this wonderful opportunity to earn a good, good paycheck, but also to get the most, just a lifetime of sermon illustrations. Um, it's not what this is about. The... The thing that happened, though, is I got stuck on an island or a boat with these 10 guys, and one of them I not only didn't enjoy, I I disliked the guy. I I didn't like him at all. He was kind of um, full of himself, a little bit, um, he was very inconsiderate, I thought. And I not only didn't get along with him, but he didn't like me as well. Now, again, I want to remind you, when you're a fisherman, it means that you are stuck either on a boat or on an island. So there's nowhere to go. Any kind of uh, isolation you might need to sort of process your frustration with another, it's just not there. And so after the weeks and days, months went on, I I simply had to learn to to care for this guy. He uh, never grew to be someone I actually enjoyed on a pure level, but I did grow to admire certain aspects of his character. I grew to be patient with some of the things that he, uh, with some of his own characteristics again. And I even came to respect him in a, in, a, in a very real way. And I tell you all of this, not because I feel that it represents my graciousness or my Christian maturity. In fact, if you are a fisherman, I don't know that your Christian maturity will grow, contrary to the disciples. Uh, <laughs> sorry, a bad joke. <clears throat> but it didn't have to do with my maturity. It had everything to do with the very simple fact that the context demanded. It simply demanded that I get along with this guy. It demanded it. And I imagine that in some ways the Christian body, the fellowship that you and I enjoy is a little like that, but but of course much, much better. You see, because our community endures forever and ever in the life of God, it means that we have to be patient, we have to be collaborative, we actually have to fight with one another, we have to deal with our conflict, we have to pray with one another, we have to be long-suffering and the things about the other people in our lives that we dislike. And I think also that we can undertake this calling. I think we can undertake this calling because, remember, in the same way all the parts of our world are resurrected into new life in Christ, in some mysterious way that we're not fully aware of, the relationships do as well. So all of the things about your relationships that are tense are brought up into a new kind of life with God. And so while the calling is great, I believe it is doable if we see it all through resurrection lenses. In other words, get right with your neighbor. Get right with your neighbor. And now while I think this is true on an individual level, I also think, again, that this is true on a corporate level as well. I believe that all of our communal efforts here in this world, in the same way that the granular aspects of our relationships with one another on individual levels, also get lifted up. 
all of our efforts to honor other Christians' traditions or to most fully uh, relate to other institutions that are our neighbors as well. All of the things that we do in our communities that feel large and grand on a corporate level, those things matter as well, I believe. I believe committing to one another in a larger corporate life actually matters too. The, the challenge is great. The challenge is immense. But I think it's good. Because here's the flip side of this truth. Here's the flip side of the truth, the call to fellowship. It means that part of the enduring capacity of Christian relationship here on this world, it means that all of the good things about the relationships that you and I enjoy with one another can last forever. All of the good things. I want you to think about specific relationships. That roommate that you had in college where you just enjoyed the other person. You talk late into the night. Those things about your grandfather that you most admired in his character. That relationship with a neighbor that you uh, had 45 years ago. The relationship that you have with your spouse in some way. All of the relational goods that you and I enjoy on this world can last. They can last. And if that isn't amazing to you, I don't know what will be. I'll admit to you that I do have hesitation toward parts of this idea. There is a part of me, probably of you as well, that feels as if there's a, a guilt factor. Maybe I should enjoy God first and foremost about imagining heaven. Maybe I should be so exclusively focused on the goodness of Jesus Christ that I let all of the other relationships sort of dissipate away. But I don't think that's how it works. Get rid of it. Get rid of that guilt. It's not true. It's not worth listening to. I don't believe. Because I think if we are ever to imagine a life with God, we will need the relationships given to us in specific ways in order to imagine the goodness of life with him. Do you see what I mean? We will need one another to see the goodness of fellowship in the life to come. And furthermore, I don't think I'm just making this up. I think it's given in our Revelation passage as well. Because if you look at all of Revelation chapter 21, you'll notice that there are two primary figures. First, there's a great wedding feast, a big banquet. And then second, it's a city. And if I were to ask you, what are the two things that most characterize a fellowship or a banquet or a city, you would say people. People. If you want to have a party, you have to have a bunch of people. If you are going to have a city, you have to have a bunch of people. What I'm getting at here is the life to come the life that you are given in Christ, and the fellowship that you enjoy here, it's for you. It's for you forever. Communities that you love matter and continue forever. And so I think you have to be captivated by this vision of ultimate reality. You have to actually long for the banquet. You have to actually long for the city of light. You have to long for all of those things via those relationships that are given to you that matter most to your very heart. All of the things that you love about your relationships should and can propel you into the hope of what's to come. Now there's one final thing that I'd just like to add to help us flesh this out a little bit. If you were to describe resurrection as an Old Testament or a New Testament thing, I would guess that you, most of you would say it is a New Testament thing. 
However, resurrection also occurs in the Old Testament, in a variety of ways, in fact. But maybe the most powerful image of resurrection that I know of in the Old Testament is from 1 Kings 17. Some of y'all will know it. It's the story of Elijah, the prophet who lived during one of the most brutal reigns of Israel's history, Ahab. He was a king who was terrible. And because of his awful uh, unfaithfulness, Israel was punished. They were undergoing an intense famine, lasted for some years. And so Elijah was told by God at one point to go to a different town. He said, uh, God told him to go to Zarephath, which by the way means refinery or like a smelting furnace. It's interesting if you think about it. You think about it later, not going to talk about it here. But he goes to stay in this town. He finds a lady and he stays with her in her upper room. It turns out that that lady's son, a little boy, child, has died. So Elijah says, let me see your little boy. She brings him the boy. Elijah takes him up in his arms. And then strangely, he takes him up into his room. It says that specifically in this narrative. Elijah carries him up the stairs, puts him in his bed, lays him out on his, his, his own bed. And then he stretches out his body over him three times. Three times he lays his body over him and he cries out to God. And in that moment, the boy comes back to life. You see, isn't this just what God does for us? Isn't it just like what God does for us? By God's own triune life, he carries us all the way into his life. You see, just like that little boy, he's picked up into the arms of the prophet, covered over him three times, significant of course, and brought back to the living, into the embrace of his mother. You see what this image gives us. The hope of the Christian gospel is not simply that we get to live on for eternity. It's that we get to enjoy fellowship with God forever. The triune life that God enjoys in his own person for all eternity is given to us by the power of his resurrecting relationship to us. You see what I mean? Just like the little boy who by the power of the prophet calling on God on high comes up into life, that relationship that God shares in and of his three persons is so strong it cannot but have us in its own presence. The life that God gives us is for one another and for fellowship with him. The triune life that God has on offer for you and me and all of us is there for eternity and it's given out of his own character, just like the little boy. And so I challenge you all this week, when you see another Christian, it is a relationship that can last into eternity. And when you feel distraught, or discouraged, or whatever it might be, remember that God's relational life is for you forever. The Christian gospel says that we belong to one another for all time. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.